You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello and welcome back to Skylight Books Podcast. I'm going to be your host uh, this week, Tyler Austin. I'm a bookseller at the store in the 1818 Vermont location. And uh, today I'm here with Emil DeAndres, who has three books, Tell Us When to Go, Hard to Grip, and Beyond Folly. His fiction has appeared in Story Quarterly, The Barcelona Review, and more. He received an MFA in creative writing from San Francisco State and teaches English at College of San Mateo. He lives in the Bay Area with his wife and son. Emil will be in conversation with Joseph Ben Khan, who is a journalist based in Silver Lake. He covers film and sports, often athletes seeking through eccentric or extreme feats of endurance. He's written about the world's best VW bug racer, America's best ultra runner, and America's greatest sports writers afterlife on the Carolina coast with stories in New York Magazine, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Times Magazine. His most recent piece was a profile of Joe Berliner, who's become something like Netflix's serial killer house band for Bloomberg Newsweek. Welcome, guys, and uh, I'd love to have Emil start us off with a reading. Cool. Thanks, Tyler. Um, My novel, Tell Us When to Go, follows the lives of two millennials uh, at the end of the recession and the onset of the tech boom. uh, And so much of the Bay Area at that time uh, is explored and sort of driven by the jobs that these two characters, uh, that the book is, the perspectives of two different characters is sort of how the book goes. And um, so much of the barrier is sort of explored uh, and driven by the, the jobs that these two characters hold, one of whom is named Cole, um, who finds work at a public high school as a special ed class aide. Uh, and the other is Isaac, who gets hired at a tech startup in Silicon Valley. And throughout these two guys' lives, uh, we co- sort of get a glimpse into two different diverging stories in San Francisco. Um, at that time. It's sort of an origin origin tale to some of this divergence that has sort of taken uh, place on a much larger scale since then uh, in the Bay Area. Um, So since so much of the book sort of hinges on their their employment, um, I'm going to read a passage from the beginning of the book when they when they finally find jobs, which at the tail of at the tail end of the recession for millennials, like work was really hard to come by at the time. Um, So this is right around that time and them finding jobs is sort of a catalyst in the book for all the other events to come. Uh, and they're sort of growing apart as characters. So this is kind of an important uh, moment. Right, this is told from the perspective of Isaac. By September, 2010, Cole and I had lived in San Francisco for two years without jobs. It was like those, Sam- it was like those high school grad trips to Costa Rica or Paris subsidized by parents, except this was ongoing and lacking fanfare. I was ashamed to take their money, I guess just a shade less than I would have been to move back home with them. On my laptop, I'd manicured a generic message and copied and pasted it to every job listing on Craigslist. Barista, data entry, valet. I got used to the feeling of applying to jobs I was overqualified for and didn't want and never hearing back. Eventually, I was offered a group interview to sell knives. Applicants sat in a windowless room for two hours and watched a short woman demo the strength of their blades by slicing through leather wallets. She said, when you show up on people's doorstep with this, they buy a set on the spot. None of the applicants was ever asked a question during the interview. 
we were all hired and congratulated with Safeway cookies. As we were leaving, they disclosed this job was commission only. Some kid raised his hand and asked what that meant. After explaining, the lady asked, is that going to be a problem? The kid shook his head but looked frightened. My first day came. I no-showed. Cole did the same thing for work, blasted emails to the furthest crevices of Craigslist, except he got fewer responses than I did because places really posed like you needed a bachelor's degree to fold their paninis for minimum wage. Cole, of course, had no such degree. It was a terrible time to move anywhere in America or make a big decision or try to start any kind of life. Whatever stability you had, the feeling in the air was that you should cling to it, take no risks. Yet even in such a climate, Cole's decision to drop out of college had been correct in my estimation. And so here we were in this bone-chilling sunset apartment, sitting on couches we'd found on the street, eating a lot of tuna helper, and we felt hopeless together, which was a kind of hope. And this is the next short chapter. Heads of surfers dotted the coast as we walked down the long hill towards Ocean Beach. On this late afternoon, the horizon was hazy like old Polaroids. Cole's sandals dragged their familiar sound, at one time a kind of strut of arrogance that had transitioned into a depression limp. He and I bought 32-ounce High Lifes at 45th and Bicenni, close to the funk and rainbow spray of the ocean. On the sand were picnics on blankets or tents to shield children from the sun. Dudes sat on driftwood drinking fat tire, this being the beer our generation chose to announce they were adults now. Cole and I clinked our jumbo bottles in the orange dusk. This was a celebration. We had both secured employment. Go was a Silicon Valley tech company, one of a notorious few that was growing despite economic weariness. Their vision tickled the public and recently investors, a digitally mapped world. Their first offering a few years earlier had been satellite views of damn near everything. Even my mom knew about the feature. She liked to enter our address on Go, zoom in all the way from outer space to our backyard, show guests and say, that's from before we resotted the lawn. Now Go was expanding to provide traffic data and directions. It was going to revolutionize transportation, make paper maps and even printing directions from MapQuest an endangered species. It never occurred to me to apply there. Any company on the rise struck me as out of my league. But in their expansion, Go was rapid hiring temp workers for entry-level positions, which meant fresh college grads. Their headhunters probably filtered their search to all recent grads within a certain distance of their Mountain View headquarters. And then boom, I had an email from one of the Bay Area's fastest growing tech companies asking if I was interested in an interview. Before the interview, I read that temp hires in America were up 25% in 2010 to nearly 3 million workers. Companies were mitigating the recession by hiring contract workers who could be paid less and fired easily, which of course sounded scary, but I'd seen on social media a classmate from high school who was currently working as a temp for Go. Her posts for the last six months did not suggest she was living in squalor or fear. A lot of yoga mats and cappuccino art selfies with bouncy hair at glimmering restaurants with hashtags like perks and best job ever. I listed the girl as a reference when filling out my application, said she could speak to my problem solving and team leading skills. She definitely had no idea who I was. When I called my dad and told him about this interview, he was eating something obnoxious like corn nuts. 
the rate of his chews conveyed his excitement. This was rare for him, excitement. He never showed it through words, but symptoms like this. Get a haircut. You look like that Goo Goo Doll singer. It's unbecoming in a professional context, he said. I wanted to say, Dad, I don't think that's how the world works anymore. People don't get denied employment on the basis of hair. But I knew he would say, what the hell do you know about the real world? And that would pretty much defeat me and every other millennial. We were entering a world we didn't know. Little hatched turtles slapping at sand towards roaring weird waves. Cool. Thank you, Emil. Uh, I'm Joey. Uh, I'm a journalist. So we got to do full disclosure up front. I think I met Emil at 14 when you were probably 17 in my basement at band practice or something. Yep. But uh, yeah, went to high school together, worked at the YMCA camp together, wow. coached a baseball team together. We got some good history, mm-hmm. but uh, really, really enjoyed this book, man. And uh, I was really struck that it felt like you've kind of meshed your two expertise, which is life after baseball and life in baseball and the strange world of subbing into this very kind of relate, very relatable for me story of the 2010s in San Francisco and what that felt like to see kind of our city on the edge. So I wanted to start early on. I mean, I was struck by something in chapter two where Isaac and Cole are riding the bus for their college baseball team. Mm -hmm. And Isaac is crocheting on the bus and he's kind of trying his best to hide it. And I wonder you're like, you know, you were a baseball player, but you're also this writer. Did you feel a need to kind of like hide this intellectual side while you were playing on these teams? No, I, I think that uh, including a character like Isaac, um, you know, it's interesting, like in early drafts, when I had people reading this book, um, I had some people be really suspicious of the of the authenticity of a character like Isaac, because they thought that it was just too incongruous to have a, like that, that a, that a college baseball team would have someone like that, someone who was crocheting, someone who's into like movie soundtracks and things like that. Um, and I thought that sort of demonstrated their naivety to the, to what a college baseball roster could look like. And the fact that you get 50 to 60 guys together and they're not all the same thing. And I think that there's probably an assumption that, you know, and there's even like a mentioning at some point in the book of the ter- stereotypical college baseball player who thinks they have eclectic music taste because they like country and rap, you know, and like they're kind of these Neanderthals who are unoriginal, who kind of just like copy paste their essays and stuff. And like those people do exist, of course. But like, again, you get like 50 or 60 dudes together and you're going to have a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And I definitely knew someone on my college uh, baseball team who crocheted. Um and it was just part of like, you know, no pun intended. It was kind of like the f- part of the fabric of, of, of the team. And like, you know, people are known for their, their sort of eccentricities. Um, and that's kind of what in, in a strange way bonds people. And so I felt like having two Cole and Isaac, both of them uh, become friends sort of improbably because Cole is sort of projected to be a first round draft pick. And he's sort of like a red carpet, so- 
carpet celebrity in the in in college sports and Isaac who's this sort of nobody become friends was kind of interesting but also not impossible um uh, in a, on, a, on a college baseball roster or on any roster um so yeah it was more important to me to sort of demonstrate how realistic honestly that was and now and not how like improbable and sort of magical realism that was yeah that's interesting i think there are uh like we most of the public see athletes on game day and i think because of that you see they got their face paint on you know they're hyped up they're finding the camera and screaming into it and you forget that there are bus rides Mm -hmm. there are sitting around pre-game there's all of that time in the dugout on the bench just shooting the shit and that these are you know, three-dimensional people. And I think you do a really good job of taking this guy who is, you know, the king of his team, who's got D1 offers, there's scouts all through his life. And then of course there is the promise of a million dollars if he could just find the strike zone. And then you have this other kid. And yeah, I agree. There is this improbability, but also that's the reality. These are baseball players. They're also people also... 18 to 20 year olds are weird as hell. And I think you capture that very well. Uh, I wanted to get to the next point, which is the yips. What did it feel like to write about the yips? I mean, you're now out of baseball, but it's almost something you're not supposed to even speak about around in a baseball setting because it's such a dangerous, incurable disease. So mm-hmm. tell me about the yips and how it felt like to write that in your book. I I have a connection to the concept of losing your baseball career before you're ready to let it go. Um, and that was the subject of my last book called Hard to Grip um, because, you know, I was never the pedigree that Cole is in that no teams were about to draft me at the end of my career. Uh, but I did get a contract to go pitch in Belgium uh, after my senior year of college. And in the same month that I got the contract, my body started to change. It started to swell up. I started to feel pain in my joints and I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. So I was never as good as Cole, but I did have the feeling of having the game taken away from me before I was ready to, and kind of in a, in an embarrassing way. Um, so and I think that when I started writing this novel, I, I, that was just sort of still kind of like seared into my subconscious, apparently, um, because it ends up being so prominent. Um, and then why I chose the yips was, well, I'd already written a book about rheumatoid arthritis or what, you know, whatever. But like, I think the yips is such a, a deeply complex, psychologically dizzying thing. Um, and again, you mentioned how, you know, people don't even want to talk about it. Um, it's basically losing the motor skill that has, has enabled you to succeed uh, in, in whatever sport you're doing, you know, forever. And it's usually something that, you know, it, it's, it's becoming more and more talked about, um, you know, in baseball, it usually happens to pitchers and, or, or second baseman, people trying to make a, a throw at a specific distance, all of a sudden they lose their release point. Something happens where the ball just starts flying in many different directions, even though your whole life you've been precise with it. It happens. And honestly, I think it's a form of 
what happened to Simone Biles in gymnastics recently. I think it's called the dizzies or the zoomies or, or something like that, where you're spinning around in the air and something you're used to doing and you become an expert at over, over years of your life. You, there's this second of, of double of second guessing, right? And there's this one moment of, of thought where you, you need to not have that thought. And it could lead, you know, in gymnastics, it could lead you to landing on your neck rather than on your feet. So anyways, I think it's just common in, in sports in many different ways. It manifests differently in, in different sports. And it's, it's like you mentioned, something that no one wants to talk about. And I feel like it was, it's kind of this pent up fear in a lot of athletes such that when their careers are over, it's almost like a catharsis to be able to speak about it um, freely without fear of it sort of, you know, infecting you or for lack of a better term, you know? Um, so Part of it was that, yeah, base, like my, the way baseball ended for me was still kind of uh, in my subconscious. And part of it was like, it was, yips were always this thing that was, that kind of was, you know, in my mind that I could never really talk about. And now that my career was over, it was finally possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't a pitcher. I was a third baseman, but I had a coach who tried, I always threw overhand, had just a rubber arm never thought about anything, never warmed up and was, you know, just, I was never going to be a college player, but just never really had any thought about any of this. Not a coach tried to teach me to throw sidearm because I was an infielder and it just added the mechanics of throwing to my mind in a way that it stopped being automatic and suddenly it was much harder to place. And I think there's, yeah, it's such a beautiful, like, metaphor for so much of life that if you're able to do something well and don't think about it it becomes this automatic easy joyful thing and the moment you start trying to diagnose like why is this fastball coming off my finger exactly this way every time and how does it hit this glove in this exact space becomes impossible (laughs) because it's too much to focus upon so I think it's great to give Cole that disease rather than Tommy John or tearing a, you know, what so many other pitchers have lost out on their career on. I mean, I grew up playing baseball, which means I had 10 different coaches tell me I would have made it to the majors, but I got a shoulder injury at the wrong time. You know, everyone has their story. Mm-hmm. And I think the yips is a story you wouldn't want to tell because it's psychological, but it also is much more textured and fascinating for actual applicability to life um you have a section about where you talk about life after baseball and there's a quote uh baseball is just a placeholder until they were bitch slapped very soon with the crisis of what to do with their lives i think uh you're writing about college baseball players but i think a lot of people graduating around when we did felt that same thing where it's there's this freedom of being a college student, you know, nothing's expected of you that much. Uh, and then you get out and suddenly there aren't really rent is extremely expensive. There aren't really jobs. It's kind of, okay, how am I supposed to spend this time? And some people spend it fucking around those first few years. Some people seem to get right into the tech track and, you know, take it feels like there is this widening gap that begins at that era like how much of that experience for you 
was drawn from real life and how much was kind of fictional way to talk about that moment. I actually, I want to read that whole section because I think it really does use the word, use the word metaphor to sort of apply to the yips a moment ago. And I feel like the whole, that whole section is sort of a metaphor for what a lot of millennials went through. Like this, this particular experience of Isaac and speaking to sort of the college baseball experience and that there's an after life where you just kind of have to sink or swim and figure yourself out. I think that that's, that is kind of a representation of like what you mentioned, what a lot of people went through. Um, so I'm going to read that sec. It's just one paragraph yeah. long because it does provide like a little bit more context. Toward the end of my time at Fresno, it was no secret that I'd never had an official at bat. There was speculation on the team, mostly playful, sometimes not, over whether coach even knew my name. Dudes asked me why I stuck it out, woke up for 6 a.m. weights, carried the helmets out to the field, threw batting practice and hit fungos only to hump the bench. I probably would have never considered it unless badgered, which I guess was evidence of my own blind spot. But my thoughts were being anonymous on a roster gave me this insulated feeling like a fish traveling in the middle of its school. Having a routine laid out for me, I found that comforting, given the alternative of figuring out who I actually was and what I wanted. That was what these numbnuts didn't understand. Baseball was just a placeholder until they were bitch slapped very soon with the crisis of what to do with their lives. Like, I think a lot of people find comfort in the, in the routine, right? Whatever routine that they find themselves in. And in any time that's disrupted, it makes them sort of be conscious of the magnitude of, of some of the choices they have to make and some of the directions that their lives are currently headed in and how they have to take ownership, I think, for some of the directions that they want to take or what they want out of their lives. And I feel like when you're 21 years old, now that I've had like 15 years since then, when you're 21 years old, fresh out of college, you're really not prepared for those to, to, to actually sincerely know the answers to those questions. Like you don't come out of undergrad you come out of undergrad and then you move back. It's almost like you rewind. You move back in with your parents. A lot of people do. A lot of millennials did, right? All of a sudden you're like kind of having a curfew again, or at the very least, like you're being surveilled by adults when for the last four years you haven't been like, it's this weird, like time capsule back into like when you were younger. And so I think it just fucks with everybody's mind to graduate from college and to be expected to somehow have the tools to be an adult and also to be expected to know what you want to do with yourself. Um, so like Isaac on this baseball team is kind of like a microcosm, I think for a lot of millennials at that time. And I think just people in general coming out of their undergrads, like for me, that was one of the hardest times in my life and one of the most directionless times in my life. And it wasn't necessarily because baseball was ripped away from me and I had rheumatoid arthritis. It was because dude, you're 21 now and you're an adult now and you're expected to sort of be able to integrate seamlessly into adulthood um, when you just like graduated from like a sociology class, which taught you shit. So like it, there's, it doesn't, there's a kind of a disconnect there that I felt Isaac sort of represented there and his role on the baseball team. Yeah, he is definitely a, a fascinating character to look through, but I think Cole in that exact same situation is like doubly so because he goes from, the center of attention, you know, standing on the mound is a beautiful metaphor for that. But also you're this kid who has your path is clear. You know, everyone plays sports until they stop playing sports. But I think it seemed like it seemed likely for him that he had a life that could go. He could play baseball until he's 35, 
become an announcer, become a coach. You know, it, it felt like he was one of the rare few who could stay in the game and to lose that all at once and also not finish college and then arrive in this city where there are, you know, waves of directionless 21 year olds, all kind of looking for that one job that's still available makes it such a starker, you know, fall from the security of the life that he had. And I think that, you know, that starkness works well to show how fucked up this all is, but also Cole is a perfect character to move through that because he also, you know, he had the yips, but he also gave up this life he could have had rather than continuing to fight for it because he has a very adept bullshit meter that he's not willing to turn down. So what was it like creating Cole? Did he, was he based on any baseball players you knew in your life? Was he based on parts of you or, you know, how did you frame him? Yeah. I mean, the things about what was going on around me uh, in 2010 that made me mad. Cole was convenient (laughs) because, uh, (laughs) I could have, I, he had a reason to be bitter as fuck. Um, and he could sort of make these hyperbolic, uh, like statements about society. Um, and it's, and it felt right for the character because he had had his whole life sort of go down in flames a few years before in a very public and humiliating way. So that he was, the fact that he was, sort of bitter at society and just bitter at easily embittered felt right. And that was a way for me to sort of vent a little bit too, without appearing like a huge dick um, about some of the things, just some of the changes in San Francisco, some of the influx and what that brought with the tech, the influx of tech and sort of what that brought, I should say. Um, And when I, when we talk about bitter, I actually, because you're mentioning Cole and sort of his, his persona. There's another section that I want to read. It's just like a, it, it sort of speaks to his downfall and order and also kind of has his tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is right when he was beginning to uh, teach. Uh, this is when, right when he got his job as a special ed paraprofessional. One morning I took a job outside of the sunset. I caught the 28 northbound on 19th Avenue and got off at Hennessy field where I played some of my games in high school. It was a wet morning, the water loud off passing tires. Breaks from Muni whined and decompressed in a very San Francisco way. I passed a donut shop and looked at myself in the window, me and my old habits. Only these days, I looked not to admire myself, but to hopefully see something non-disappointing, like fashionably unkempt hair. I took notice of my baggy khakis, how they were stuck in the past, from the years when whatever size you were, you purchased three sizes bigger. This was the Limp biscuit and Frosted Tips era, school dance mosh pit era, when I would jump and shove breathless to Blink-182 songs I didn't like. Now, in 2010, Baggy seemed to be going extinct. I'd observed this in grown men who wore pants that were shrink-wrapped to their bruised fruit-shaped asses, cuffs rolled tightly to the ankles, as if to imply wood chopping. All these non-gym-going dudes wearing skinny jeans and somehow having careers and joy. Yes, I was a bitter person, obviously. I'd have no problem admitting this to a psychiatrist, should I ever meet with one. And yes, I'd been recommended one many times by my coach Lonnie at Fresno State, who said, 
you know, these, these sports psychologists today understand athletes better than they understand themselves. And my dad, who said, people get paid a lot of money to help others. They're professional and they wouldn't be employed if, they did, if what they did didn't work. And girls who hardly knew me, who said therapy like saves lives. Not to mention all the posts I would snoop on sleepless nights on social media back when it was new and clumsy and people said things not knowing everyone could see what they said. Zoloft, Xanax, Prozac, try something. This is getting too hard to watch. Am I right? So that's kind of the, the, the frame of mind that Cole has. Um, and so it, it's, you know, it speaks to his own past and sort of the, the, the trauma that he endured psychologically from his own meltdown, which he's, you know, ashamed he feels was self-induced. But it also is a commentary on some of these changes that start to undergo in San Francisco around that time. Yeah, and I think putting Cole into the SFUSD is a fascinating choice. Obviously, your first book, Beyond Folly, has more of a young, bumbling character moving through the strange world of subbing and the SFUSD. But putting this kind of scarred, bitter ex-athlete there was even more interesting to me because it's like, as anyone who works at schools know, you have to put up with some shenanigans, not just from kids, but from seemingly nice teachers and somewhat out of touch administrators mm -hmm. and the realities of budgets and all of that. And in uh, Beyond Folly, it felt like the character kind of was having this bureaucracy put upon him. And in this book, it's kind of like Cole is a man who's unable to abide bullshit <laughs> so he's kind of a perfect man to place into this <laughs> class 10b where everything is bullshit mm -hmm. these kids are just absolutely placed in a room and hopefully we graduate some of them but really it's just try to get them to show up each day and then you place Cole in there so tell me about your experience in the sfusd and how that's kind of bled into your fiction yeah, I mean, I think the lived experiences in SFUSD are like really, really important stories that can go untold if the effort's not made or the, you know, the, the, there's so many people like Dizzy and Dizzy's like the character that Cole gets paired with. She's a foster student who lives on Treasure Island, who's one strike away from getting expelled and Cole basically gets hired with the sole purpose of trying to prevent her from making that last strike and getting expelled. So his whole purpose is trying to get her graduated. Um, but she has her own traumas and she is, you know, um, she can be challenging and she has her own challenges. And so putting Cole as, as her last hope seems like really, really hopeless. Um, I was actually in, I was at San Quentin a week ago today because some inmates there read my book and they have a book club there. And so I, I visited and spoke with them about the book. Um, and they sort of had a similar question about like, how did you have these two people come together and how are you able to make them sort of get along? And it was, it was a long process writing this book, trying to get these two people who had completely different backgrounds find grow a friendship, grow a relationship in a way that didn't feel plastic or insincere or like, 
you know, sugary or Hollywood or whatever, like something that actually was believable and, 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 and like real. And it took a long time and I, it was, and then it kind of just hit me that both these characters have like real grudges against the world, you know, uh, and both of them have been wronged, uh, you know, in completely different ways from one another, but they find commonality in their, in their anger at the world, their bitterness. Um, and I think, th I think that was like a really, that was a real way that two people can sort of connect even from completely different backgrounds and completely different traumas. Um, and, you know, so Cole, he's mad at himself and he has a hard time sort of reconciling his own perceived failures, but he's also angry at the world because he got trolled pretty bad on social media during his downfall. Uh, and he's mad that the world can just do that without any repercussions. And I feel like he and Dizzy find commonality in this sort of bitterness against the world. The, the rest of the world is able to live one way and we are not. Um, and so that's kind of how I... I attempted to put that together. Um, so, yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, it's unlikely that they, I like improbable friendships, you know, because they happen. Um, and Cole and Isaac are an improbable friendship, right? One is a, one is the most famous collegiate baseball player. And the other one is unknown and they're on the same team and they become friends. And Cole and Dizzy also have completely different backgrounds, completely different experiences and through a lot of ups and downs become friends. And I feel like that gives people hope. Um, and it's, and it's fun to be on that journey. And I feel like people have those journeys um, and it's nice to live them. Yeah. And I think uh, I won't spoil anything, but there's a moment where you think it might take a Hollywood turn and your narrators even mentioned, this is not going to take a Hollywood turn. <laughs> and I think uh I appreciated the reality that like the end is not going to be this beautiful world that Dizzy gets access to or that Cole gets access to. Cause like we live this moment, it would feel completely unrealistic to say, yeah, the tech tech came and saved the Bay area and everyone got a chance and everyone got some uh, access to this new gold rush and all of that. The reality is, people like Cole and Dizzy and honestly most often people like Isaac too were pushed out or left behind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this is, I mean, I, I wonder talking about writing about that tech moment. It feels like it's both been written to death, but also not quite understood. How did, what did it feel like to kind of like join into the, many attempts to capture what the 20 or very early 2010s felt like in San Francisco, where so much change was happening. I mean, you nailed it, dude. It is getting exhausted. Like I'm lucky I got my book in there uh, <laughs> with all the other stuff that's coming out about, I mean, it is, it's a fetish. It's becoming fetishized right now. The, flaws of silicon valley you know like it was this oasis or was it and then like this ceo actually was a shitty person this this like this job had a toxic work environment like it's just everybody's sort of putting out their stories and everybody's got their you know and all the dudes down there actually turned out to be shitty frat bros basically with the illusion of making the world a better place blah 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 like 
yeah, I'm lucky. Um, and it, it seems like inevitable that these moments have their reckoning, you know, like it, that's, that's what Michael Lewis, that's why Michael Lewis is like a, the best or the biggest writer in nonfiction is because he like, this book is kind of like, or at least it attempts to be like what the big short was. It like sort of explains what happened after it happened and like goes back to it. You know what I mean? So like people are like watching like the shit happen in like the big short, like, I can't believe people are this crazy or stupid or whatever. Um, that's kind of like what this book attempts to do, but without really pointing fingers. Like, I don't think necessarily that any of the people working in tech in this book were necessarily evil people. I mean, you could accuse them of being self-interested um, and acting out of, yeah, like acting out of their own self-interest, but they're not, not really any more so than most of us do on a daily basis. You know, um, they just happen to be making more money be willing to, and they're willing to pay more for rent. And that's the system that's accommodating them. Um, so yeah, they're kind of like annoying with their quirks and stuff. And like their lifestyle is obviously like enviable. Like they get free on wallet and they get massages and Xboxes at work and stuff like that. And it's easy to like get like to resent that, but they're not bad people. Um, and so that was kind of the important thing, at least in terms of my representation of the whole Silicon Valley thing is that I didn't want to like really explode the people that were working in it. I know from like top down, there was some pretty shady shit going on. And there's some shady shit that goes on in this book in terms of like the way the hierarchy of employees, like the hierarchy of like perks for employees. Like if you're an engineer, you get like cooler shit. Whereas like, if you're just like a contract worker, you just get like access to some cool shit. And then slowly throughout the book, the perks start getting taken away from people. Like their healthcare starts to get taken away. So like from a macro standpoint, like there is some like shady stuff in, in my iteration of the tech world, but like the actual workers themselves are really not that bad people. And I want, that was really important to me. Um, so yeah, like I feel, I feel lucky that my book sort of gets to join this kind of Rolodex of books that's coming out right now, both nonfiction and fiction that and even like, you know, there's, there's even, there's a book coming out. I just kind of am vaguely acquainted with this guy. It's his name is Josh Riedel, I think. And the book coming out is report your bug here. And it's sort of like also taking place in a fictional um, Silicon Valley world with a fictional startup that sort of explores some of the ethical kind of questions that are brought up through the functioning of Silicon Valley. Anyways, there's just like so much of it coming out. And yeah, it, what was important to me was that the dudes weren't villainized and they were just sort of a product of this, of this environment sort of accommodated them. Um, yeah. Well, what I thought was interesting was that it was, I mean, it's easy to group that into that space. I even did with my question, but I think it's uh, San Francisco and specifically like West side of San Francisco book more than it is a Silicon Valley book. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, yeah, again, like, the Silicon Valley people that I knew that you knew were not founders raising hundreds of millions of dollars. They were, I got this job at this weird company, but it's crazy. They have, they keep giving me t-shirts and I get a water bottle. And like, those were the level of perks that these people are getting. And it blew my mind as a 22 year old cafe worker that, Oh my God, you can print, you could play 
ping pong. You could do these kind of things. It was that level of like evil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I think uh, it felt more realistic. It's not, I don't think you're going to, you know, take down the social network with this thing. It's much more like the go or the Google or the Facebook or whatever that we saw at that time was much more about, oh, these guys have kind of bullshit jobs, but there's so much money flowing that they're, they can afford rent and they get these weird perks at work. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very good way to cover that. And for someone like Isaac, who actually is driven and also has a bullshit meter, I think it like didn't work for him because he was not able to play the game and do all of that. He actually just tried to do the best work. And often at these big companies, it's, you know, friendship with the middle manager or something is going to be what uh, defines your career. Um, Quickly, before we go, I don't know what our timing is, but uh, I wanted to talk about writing about the West side of San Francisco. Because I think... uh, me and you both grew up in that area. We went to school in that area and it's not ever <laughs> covered in San Francisco fiction or film or anything. So like, what does it mean to you to write about the sunset? Well, it's, I mean, it's cool because I mean, someone could have a counter to this, but generally speaking in our 35 years of being on the west side of San Francisco, there hasn't been that, it hasn't lost its identity all that much. Like, yeah, Noriega at the beach looks different than Noriega at the beach did when we were in middle school. And like, yeah, Judah has a couple places down there by the beach that has people fucking wrapped around the block for a cup of coffee. Like, there's trendiness, I get it. But like, large scale change, like the kind of large scale change that has taken over San Francisco. You walk the majority of blocks of San Francisco and they look pretty much the same as they did. I mean, it's just stat house next to house, glued to house, glued to house, glued to house. It's just the same as it, as it was when we were growing up and, you know, having been a sub for 15 years going into uh, middle school subbing substitute teach. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's given me a lens into the sunset as well is just always like continually substitute teaching there and seeing the student body that largely remains the same as well. And so I feel like it's, and you know, someone can c- clap back at me and be like, yeah, well, houses were three, 300,000 when you're growing up and now they're 2.2 million. Like explain that. Like I get it. Like everything, the cost of living has risen for sure. That's definitely a huge change. But I mean, like, yeah, the sunset, like there's still Irish pubs and dim sum, like, and that's, that's dependable as hell still. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And it's almost as if you're kind of from the, you're sort of an observer of the change rather than being like as much of like a, like on the front lines of it. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, and it's also just kind of like whimsical and it's, I mean, it really is truly the foggy part of San Francisco. When people think of the fog, like it's along the coast and the sunset is soft in it, you know, barely ever sees the sun. And it, it just, I don't know, it's very harmonious in that way. And it's, it, um, 
you know, used to bomb the hills on the skateboard and you go to the subway on, you know, that's just like, it's what I grew up in. And it's, it's what I love the most about being in San Francisco. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's a special place. And I hadn't really ever had a chance to write about it. Um, and this book never really was going to be a San Francisco book in the first place. You know, initially I finished the, the draft of this book, uh, you know, probably in like 2017 or 2018. And it was like 500 pages long and it was just about Cole. And it was all about sort of the way inner psychology of his nervous breakdown and all the different ways he was trying to reconcile in it. It was just like super exhausting to write. And it was like, it just bogged me down. Um, but that narrative could have been taken anywhere at any time and been the same. And then because I was just so like, kind of honestly depressed by the book, I started to give ownership to all these other characters, these side characters in the book, like, like Isaac and Dizzy. And by giving them ownership and by giving their story more light, um, and that, you know, by exploring their jobs and their days on a day-to-day -day basis, like it, it ended up becoming a San Francisco book, um, sort of inevitably. And then that opened things up for me to really like give, make San Francisco a character and make the sunset a character, um, et cetera. And sort of as a representation of like, you know, these dueling San Francisco's, like if there's a San Francisco that kind of stubbornly won't change and a San Francisco that is eagerly like rapidly changing as well and i what i love about the sunset is i mean you say stubbornly don't change i feel like there's parts of the mission that have like held on and it's mm -hmm. like they're being stubborn i feel like between the tw uh 20th avenue and 40th avenue no one's even like tried <laughs> it's beautiful mm -hmm. it is the exact same it was mm -hmm. as a kid now that it's getting sunny by the beach, I feel like the very, you know, 40 to 48 eighth Avenue is getting a little hip, but like very the hip. Tw 20 to 40 belt is just mm -hmm. nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's like double parked everywhere. Yeah. Insane driving, all yes. of that. It's just great. like <laughs> accelerate through stop signs. Like and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. And like, honestly, in terms of development and housing development and, you know, everything rising in price, like for the most part, there's only like, there's not that many huge additions to houses, like, because there's so much regulation. So like the optics of it remain the same, you know, um, there's no room for any fucking houses, dude. Like every, it's, yep. it's developed. It's nothing's, I mean, there's regulations on whether or not I can go any higher. So like they ain't going higher. And there's just like, these little monopoly houses just like undulating uh and then they there's some fun uh, illegal garage units with like eight foot high ceilings but that's yeah. about it that's, that's basically happening. what i lived in and it's basically <laughs> what cole and isaac are living in as well right like there's a there's a part in the book later on where it's like you know it's winter time and it's fucking freezing in their house and the heating doesn't work in their house and they email their landlord about a leak that's creating black mold and the landlord emails them back have you tried duct tape and it's just like they're scared to they're scared to do anything about it because they're scared of getting evicted um like we've all lived in those in-laws you know um and that's kind of part of my love of it too yeah i think uh i'll we should sign off i hear a crying baby off uh camera but yeah. i think what this captured was like San Francisco is messy. Our memory of it is idealized partly because it was from when we were young, 
growing up there. But I think this captures a very real feeling moment when it felt like it changed. And I haven't quite unscrambled if it changed because I turned 22 and had to start paying rent and couldn't take 45 minute muni rides and do all of that. Or if it changed because it fully shifted all at once. But I think this is a very beautiful portrait of that moment, which I think a lot of us, even not from San Francisco can remember. Yeah. Well guys, thanks again for, for coming on and chatting about this. Emil, I'm going to have to track down this and hard to grip because uh, baseball, baseball shit just right into my veins. I wanted <laughs> to jump in so badly for all the baseball talk, but as a host, I had to bow out. It's uh but anyways, thank you guys so much again, Joey. Best of luck with the baby. And uh, uh, thank you again, everybody, for listening. You can find Emil's book at our 1818 Vermont location, Skylight Books. And uh, swing on by and check it out. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, y'all. All right. See you guys. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>